got to wait for the voice from up above to let me know to start. I can go. Good. All right. Yes. Yeah, so every preacher should wait for the voice from above to say go. Um, just, just to tag on to that, it's kind of fun to see Dick and Joyce there and then get up and see them back there as well. It's great to have some people back. It should have showed another week. Um, I would, I've said this a few times, but we do need more volunteers to help with the tech and the video, and some of you, I'd love for you to think, I'd like to do that. Reed can train you, uh, and, and his wife actually might like to see him at home again occasionally, every now and then, so uh, if there are other people that can help with sound or video, we'd love to have you volunteer. I also want to say we're in to our ninth week of Revelation, and uh, <laughs> can I just say something that I think everybody feels? This is really weird, right? This book is a weird book. Angela says to me, you've got to tell them it's weird. And I remember thinking, oh, we're going on to live stream now and we're doing Revelation. And these people from the community that don't normally come to our church and know us are watching us and we're talking about bowls of wrath pouring out and all this stuff. It is weird. Uh, but I want you to realize it's, it's a different genre of biblical literature. It's apocalyptic literature. And the Bible Project guys were so nice as to release a video this week. Uh, I put the link in the, uh, uh, the email, or Christine put the link in the email that came out. If you don't have that, you can just Google Bible Project Apocalyptic Literature. And it's a little six-minute video that explains why Revelation is as weird as it is. It's a type of literature meant to, it means, apocalypse means to unveil. They're trying to pull back the curtain and help us see beyond with all these images. And, and what, what we've seen in this revelation, this apocalypse of Jesus, is that he's with his church as they suffer, uh, that, that the lion of Judah is a slain lamb, right? It's a different type of leadership than what we're used to. And, and we saw the seven seals, this clash of kingdoms as the kingdom of God comes against the kingdom of the world. We saw the seven warning trumpets, uh, this, this, the, the, these messages of judgment that are warnings. Remember, a third, a third, a third. And then we got to the central, the heart of the book, the woman, the dragon, and the child, this story underneath it all that, that evil wants to overcome and Christ has made a way to defeat evil dragon and the two beasts who are fighting a losing battle. And then last week, we talked about this image of the blood that flowed from the wine press of the wrath of God. And, and I, I did a different take on that than maybe you've heard before. I stole it. I didn't come up with it on my own. I stole it from people way smarter than me. Um, but I, I said this, this blood at the end of chapter 14 that's flowing for 180 miles uh, as high as a horse's bridle is a symbol of the blood of Christ that covers all our sin. And it's a very different take. And some of you, I got two responses this week via email and in our conversations. One group of you said, oh, I love trading that blood of judgment for the blood of grace. Thank you so much. And they're all thinking I'm just lovely. And other people are like, I don't know about that. It says wrath, the wrath of God, the wine press of the wrath of God. And it doesn't sound like the blood of Christ there. It sounds like judgment for sin. So I'm, I'm glad we've got that other group because that's a really good question. And this week, we enter into the last group of seven. We've had seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls of wrath, or also known as the seven plagues. Now, doesn't that just make you want to read the text, right? Seven bowls of wrath. Woo! Let's open it up and take a look. Um, Pauline, Brian is going to read our text for us. We'll see that on the screen, and you'll see it at home, and then we'll pick up in it's Romans 15.1 to 16.21. I'll let Pauline read. 
Revelation, excuse me. Thank you. I keep wanting to go to Romans, but... Uh... I think maybe that's a good thing. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given by that given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sorrows, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons, 
performing miraculous signs and they go out in the king, to the kings of the whole world to gather them from the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because plays were so terrible. Isn't that just a story that you want to read to your children as you tuck them in at night, right? This is um, this whole focus on the wrath of God. These seven bowls of wrath, these seven plagues are unusual to say the least, but I, I want to look at this idea of wrath. Remember, one of our rules in Revelation is you'll let go of some of the things you've thought in the past, at least for the 30 minutes I talk. You can pick them up again later, but let's, let's think about our understanding of wrath. And, and I want to do that. I want to look closely at the text. We're going to work our way through it, then we're going to try to apply it to what's going on right now. But, but what I want you to see when we look at this section from 15.1, basically chapter 15 to 16, the text has bookends. It has things at the beginning and at the end. Now, John in the Revelation is a master of bookends. In the first chapter, we see Jesus is coming, the time is near, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And you go to the last chapter and you see the same things. Jesus is coming, the time is near, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He's bookended the whole book with those ideas. And this little section here toward the middle is bookended it well. It has two ideas that we see at the beginning of 15 and at the end of 16. And it's a bookend around what we're talking about, these seven bowls. The first bookend that we see is the wrath of God. It's in 15.1. Then I saw another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven plagues, seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. Then if you go to 16.19, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. It's also in the middle, 15.7, it's in 16.1, but it's a picture we don't really enjoy, the wrath of God. And I find people tend to have two ideas of God, right? And they, they're drawn to one and kind of repulsed by the other. One is this kind, forgiving, and merciful God. We see that in Jesus very clearly. And, and people are drawn to that, and, and we like that. Uh, and then other people say, no, there's this wrathful God, this punishing sin, Right, this God who executes judgment and justice. And and the question is, which one is he? And the scriptures make it very clear that yes, he is both of those. As hard as it is for us to reconcile that, how, how we can't really conceive how that would work, that's what we see in scripture. Both sides 
of God in Exodus 34. When Moses sees God, this won't be on the screen, but it's it's verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. This guy here, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And then the rest of the verse, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And you say, but Jeff, wrath, that's such an Old Testament concept. You know, every single book in the New Testament, Every single one talks about the wrath of God. So we can't get away from it. It's a big part of the Bible. And and I think part of the problem, and one of the things that makes us uncomfortable with it, is we equate the wrath of God with anger, with our own anger. When we've been mad, we feel like that's God's wrath. God's mad about sin, and he has to take it out on somebody. He has to explode. And, and maybe there's a hint at that. I remember when we were on sabbatical years ago and we spent three months in Birmingham, Alabama. I learned a lot about the civil rights movement while I was there, right? We went, went to the, the park there in the center of the town where all the, the riots were. Or where the, actually, they were riots. They were spraying down people with fire hoses. And there was the 16th Street Baptist Church. We took the kids there. And that's where uh, one Sunday morning... Four little girls, there were bombs planted underneath the steps of the church and they exploded and they killed four little girls. Addie Mae Collins, who was 14, Carol Denise McNair, who was 11, Carol Robertson, who was 14, and Cynthia Wesley, who was age 14. And I remember standing in that church and just, I could not believe that people would, would bomb a church and kill four young black girls because of something that they thought was right. And I remember getting angry about that. There was a stained glass window in the church, a picture of Jesus. And the only thing that the bomb knocked out of it was the face. The face fell to the ground and shattered. And people were saying it's because God can't look on that. He just can't believe the depravity that we'll go to. And I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm usually pretty docile. I'm not one of these alpha male that gets mad all the time. But I can remember just feeling in my stomach this rage. Who would dare do that? And, and, and I think that's pointing toward the wrath of God, but it's not anger like us. I mean, wrath is not God's road rage towards unrighteousness. That's not the way it is. It's one of his attributes. Uh, uh, Leon Morris, the theologian, says it's a burning zeal for what's right coupled with a perfect hatred for what's evil. It's not his bad temper. It's not like God gets so mad at our sin that he just has to explode It's a part of who he is. It comes out of his goodness, actually, because it can't tolerate evil. It flows from his goodness and leads to the eradication of evil. It's a common thread throughout the scripture. It's an attribute of God we cannot get away from until here. And that's the other bookend. The other bookend is it is finished. In in 15.1, because with them, the seven last plagues, God's wrath is completed. Greek word there is tetelestai, which is the same thing Jesus said on the cross. It is finished, tetelestai. Same thing again at the end of the book in 1617. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. See, there's this wrath of God bookending the text, but there's also the fact that the wrath of God is going to be finished and done. Remember the question in chapter 6 where the saints are underneath the throne and they say, how long, O Lord? Well, here's the answer. It's finished. There's going to be an end. 
And it begins to point to what we see in chapter 21 and 22, this new heaven, this new earth, this all things made new. What's interesting to note is I said in 15.1, it's that same word Jesus used on the cross when he said it's finished. It, it, it means to bring things to an end. It comes from the, 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 the word telos, which means purpose. Or, or, and so to telestai means to bring it to an end, to pay. It's paid in full. It's completed. But in 16.17, it's a different Greek word. It says, um, let me read it to you again. There came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And the Greek word is genomai, which is a very different word about it is finished. What it means is it, 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 it's something new has come. The old is finished because something new is here. Another time that word genomai is used is in Luke chapter 2. And suddenly a great heavenly host appeared in the heavens before the shepherds singing. Right? That word appear. So... That's the same Greek word, genomai, as you see in, in chapter 16. So the first one is, it's done. The first time we see it's finished, it's done. But the second time we see it, it's actually, it's not only done, something brand new is starting. Something's appearing out of this. The idea is that wrath, while a reality in the fallen world, will one day be finished. And when it's finished, something else will begin. Something without wrath, a creation where... Hating evil isn't possible because evil doesn't exist anymore. Now, that's the kind of creation I'm signing up for. That's where I want to be. So this passage is about wrath. It's about the finishing of wrath. But what happens in between, really quickly, in between you see a refusal to repent. In 16, verse 9, they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent. 16, 11, and they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And even in 1621, from the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. There's this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here um, because hopefully we're not refusing to repent. But in the middle of this wrath and everything that's coming out, there's this constant refusal. There are some people that it doesn't matter what happens, they will not change their mind. There's a refusal to repent there. But I, I want you to see, even in these seven bowls, as God just doesn't wipe them out with the first one. There's this slow process of the wrath of God coming giving people, there's a patience in that. It's, it's what I'll call the path of wrath. And now we're going to look at the seven bowls. They're fascinating. They're really connected with the trumpets, which we saw earlier, back in chapter 7, 8, 9, around there. The first trumpet and the first bowl, both, if you, you can make a little chart. Those of you that are into charts, you can go home and do this today. Uh, there's a little chart. The first trumpet and the first bowl both affect the earth. The second trumpet and the second bowl affect the sea. The third trumpet and the third bowl affect the rivers. The fourth trumpet and the fourth bowl affects the sun. The fifth, it's, it happens in the pit of evil, and the fifth bowl is poured out on the throne of evil. And the sixth trumpet and bowl both deal with the river Euphrates. These warning trumpets have been pointing toward these bowls of judgment. And the heart of the message is that even in wrath, God is showing patience and restraint and giving people opportunity to repent even if they won't. And, and these hard hearts lead to Bowl number seven, which is the famous battle of Armageddon. And we'll get there, but as I've hinted before, it's not that big a deal. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the first bowl, number one, makes it clear that rebellion will lead to pain. Chapter 16, verse 2. 
The first angel went and poured out the bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. These are the people who've refused to surrender to the lamb. They're following the beast, and, and rebellion against the lamb will lead people to pain. It echoes along with all these bowls. If you, if you listen, one of the things about apocalyptic literature is it draws images from other places in Scripture. And all these bowls of wrath, if you go back to the plagues in Egypt, the sores, the water turned to blood, all those things are echoes of the plagues. You've got frogs coming out, right? The, the, the whole point here is though you cannot resist the truth. If you decide to rebel against the Lamb, ultimately it will bring you pain. Because all of creation was created to live under the lordship of Jesus. And it does not function any other way. My good friend Carter, you guys know Carter. He turned 13 this week and his mom got him for, Christmas, for his birthday a, a new laptop. And it's got a touch screen and it's the coolest thing ever. That laptop is pretty amazing. But if Carter, well Carter won't do this. If anybody decided to take that laptop scuba diving, the laptop would cease to function. It's not made to function under salt water, right? And the same way that that laptop would fail underwater, if we refuse to surrender to the leadership of the Lamb, we're gonna, rebellion will always lead to pain. Our life was not meant to be lived our own way. And that leads us to the, the next two bowls in verses three and seven, or verses three to seven. Those two bowls both have blood, one on the sea, one in the rivers. Why blood? Once again, images from Egypt, right? Water turned to blood. And it says in 16.6, there's a key word there. Uh, they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. That word deserve there is the same word that's been used all throughout Revelation when people say, worthy are you. It says you've given them blood to drink because they're worthy of that. Because they've shed the blood of the prophets. Now I think that points back to what we just saw at the end of 14 where the blood was shed. Right? But, but this idea of holy, 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 you are the one who is worthy to open the seals, uh, angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders, elders crying out, you are worthy. It sets up this contrast in the mind of the listeners. The lamb has been worthy, 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 worthy. And now here are these people standing against the lamb, following the beast, and they're worthy to drink wrath. That's what they deserve. And that, that's bowl number two and three. You reap what you sow. People who set themselves up in opposition to God, who kill his people, will get what they deserve. And the image again is of them having blood to drink. Right? That, you've got to see the contrast here. Who else says this cup is a new covenant in my blood? And, and here they're saying the people who refuse to follow the lamb will drink the blood of the martyrs in judgment. It'll be the blood of wrath. The great harlot, it says at the end, is drunk on the blood of the martyred saints. It's a hard image to see, you know, because right now what, what we see very often is people who are devoted to Jesus suffer and people who lift up the beast or live that way don't. But wrath says a time will come when all will be made right, when people will get what they deserve. It's the heart of the gospel that surrender means you allow Christ to step in and, and receive the wrath of God for you. You surrender to his leadership. You rest in his worthiness. The blood that you drink as a believer is his. But for those who refuse, there's nothing but suffering. It's a difficult image. Another insight about wrath in number four and five, you know, like my rhyming there maybe, from bright to night with no relief. First, they're scorched by the sun in bowl four, right? The sun is so hot that it scorches them. 
Imagine that the heat and longing for the darkness to come once again. When we were in Birmingham that summer, man, it was hot sometimes. And I would just love, I'd be so excited when the sun went down and you'd go outside and it was still hot. There was just no relief. It's hot when at 10 o'clock at night. It was 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And that, these people feel the, the heat of the sun. They long for relief, but they don't get it. And it says, and they cursed God because of the sun. And so darkness comes. Bowl five is poured out on the throne of the beast. But even the darkness didn't bring relief. You know, some of us know that feeling too. When the, that seasonal affective disorder, when we don't have enough sun, we just feel that heaviness and that, that darkness that weighs us down. But what, what we see here is the nature of evil. Sometimes when, when we're cursing God for what we've got, we get the exact, we run away from that. We get the exact opposite, but that doesn't fulfill either. They're mad because of the sun and they get the darkness and the darkness doesn't give them what they need. That's part of resisting God. You long for peace, but peace eludes you. Eludes you. you get, end up getting mad at God because he won't give you what you want. And when he does give you what you want, it still doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make you fulfilled. It, it, this, this diminishing returns, this fact that you don't want this and so you want that, but that doesn't work for you, is meant to lead you to Jesus. It's meant to say, I don't want any of that. I want what you want to give me. It's what you were created for. And these last two bowls concerns the famous battle of Armageddon in 16 verses 12 to 21. Now the point I want you to see about number six and number seven in Armageddon is it's the battle that isn't. In number six, the Euphrates dries up to make a way for the kings to come from the east. And three evil spirits that look like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of beast one, and out of beast two. Who can, you know, you can't make this stuff up. It's quite an image, right? And these, these frogs, these demons are inciting the kings to come to this Armageddon for the battle. Now look at the wording in 1614. I want you to look at that. It doesn't say to gather them for the great battle on the day of God Almighty. It doesn't say that. It says to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. See, we, we have this image in our head of this huge battle of Armageddon. But what, what we see in the text is quite different. Before we, before we get there, you've got all the kings of the earth coming. In bowl six, and then there's a pause. Remember between six and seven, there's always a pause with a message for the church. And once again, in verse 15 and 16, there's a pause between bowl six and bowl seven. And the message is, I'm coming when you least expect it, like a thief. So be ready. He's telling the church, it looks like the battle's coming. You think, you think it's going to be this big, huge battle, but I'm coming. You be ready for me. And then the kings gather for battle in this valley of Armageddon. Now, let me clarify a few things just to make sense here. There is no such place in the Middle East as Armageddon. It's, it's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew phrase, Har Megiddo. Megiddo is a city, and Har means the mountain of. So, so it literally means the mountain of Megiddo. Now, the problem with that is there is a Megiddo. There's a, Megiddo is a very famous place. Angela and I went there. But it's not a mountain. There's a little video clip. I think Reed can pull that up, maybe. We'll see. Now that, what you see in front of you, all that flat, Chilliwack-looking-like land, that's, that's the region of Megiddo. Okay? What, what we are standing on is actually the tell of the city. 
it is a little hill where they basically, the city got destroyed and they filled it with dirt and they built another one on top of it. So there's a little hill there, but there is no mountain of Megiddo. There is no Armageddon, Har Megiddo anywhere. There's a plain of Megiddo. So I think one of the things we have to realize right away is that this is not so much talking about a specific mountain that the battle's going to take place on, but it's calling our attention to something about Megiddo. Now, if you, if you go through Jewish history back in 2 Kings 23, just before the exile, Judah goes out and they fight against Egypt and they lose a huge battle against Egypt at Megiddo, which is the beginning of the fall to Babylon. They're so weakened by the battle with Egypt that Babylon comes in and takes them over. And one of the things I think that's happening here in this Megiddo point is that Babylon got them before because of what happened at Megiddo. But in this, the great Babylon, it's being undone. It's being undone. He's remaking history because this battle isn't even a battle at all. If you are one of those people that likes pay-per-view boxing, can you imagine if you paid 50 bucks for your big boxing match and then they just called it off? There was nothing there. You'd be furious, right? The battle of Armageddon is happens in verse 17 chapter 16 the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying it is done that's the battle the kings of the earth have gathered the angel pours his bowl boom it's done we'll we'll see that again next week in chapter 19 that really nothing happens there there's this the the king of kings shows up and it's over the battle of Armageddon is a non-event, and I want to say that really clearly to you because a lot, there's several reasons. <laughs> Number one, I'm, I'm really, hmm, let me choose my words carefully. I get frustrated when Christians seem to be excited about war in the Middle East because we think, oh, it's coming toward Armageddon, Jesus is coming back. Christians should never celebrate war and death. Why would we ever be excited about that? Do you see how self-centered that is? To think, yeah, sure, poor innocent children and women are being killed, but Jesus is coming back. I mean, we get excited because we misunderstand. We think there's got to be this great battle there. It's a symbolic thing that happens like that. And, and, and it's like we're, we're longing for this. And, and to me, that just puts us at odds with Jesus who says, love your enemies. Forgive those who hurt you. And... and I want you to realize the battle, we've talked about this before, the battle was over at the cross. The cross and the resurrection took care of that battle. It's not something that still has to happen. It's been done. It's the battle that isn't. So what, what can we take away from these bowls? What, what, what did the final round of seven say to us? How do we apply the wrath of God? Several things we need to note um, and, and I would encourage you to take some time and think about this. I, I grew up in the southern United States, and I remember going to a sermon, uh, and the, one of the pastor's main points was um, the Bible is more like NASCAR than a drag race. Now, that's a southern Baptist church, probably, I tell you. What, what he was saying was NASCAR. You know what NASCAR is? It's the stock cars, and they drive like 500 laps. The races last like three or four hours. They go circle. He said the Bible's like that. It's not like a drag race where you boom. And, and what, what I want us to realize, we, we say it, Canadians would say, the Bible is much more like a crock pot than a microwave, okay? It's, it's not as Southern, but it's, you, get, you get the idea. It's not fat. You don't understand how to apply the wrath of God like this. You have to sit with it. You have to, to think it over. 
So I want you to take some of these ideas away, hopefully, and just think about it. And the first one is this. Don't underestimate wrath or its cure. First, realize the wrath of God is a terrible thing. Let the imagery of those bowls sink in. Source, water turning to putrid, stinky blood. People scalded by the sun, people mentally deranged by darkness, and no relief. Right? It's not something to trivialize or downplay. This is what wrath does to people who refuse to surrender to Jesus. For those who experience it, it's terrible. You know, we look, we look around the world and we see suffering. Maybe we've experienced suffering. But these images give us a realization that when God finally, for the last time, pours out his wrath to purge the world of evil, it'll be worse than any experience known to humanity. We can't underestimate wrath and its devastation, but we also can't underestimate the, what, what, what's the cure for wrath. See, the cure for wrath is the death of the utterly sinless God on a cross for you and for me. That's what's powerful. The amazing nature of what it took to undo the situation that our rebellion against God started in the earth. John 19, 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, there, there are people who, who deny wrath. I just want Jesus to be this loving, friendly person. And we don't want to talk about wrath and difficulty and pain but the truth is, and scriptural truth is, that people who resist this loving, forgiving person will suffer for it. But the, the beauty is that this loving, forgiving person made a way. He, he brought a cure for this wrath to be avoided. And that's why we also need to realize the positive side of wrath. You see, as we see Revelation, in the revelation of Jesus, we see a God who is strong and powerful and horrible. I don't mean horrible like terrible or me. I just mean we, we don't control this God. <laughs> he, he, he has power and he is beyond us. But his wrath is not the anger of an impatient child. His wrath is not like the anger of, of a dictator, like Kim Jong-il, like the Korean dictator, these people who kill their family. That's not what we see as the wrath of God. His wrath has a purpose to cleanse creation of evil, to wipe it out, to restore it to its original intent. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the new thing that's begun. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things, the things, the order of things where wrath had to be to purify it has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. You see, his wrath is not to destroy us, but to restore us. And only those people who refuse suffer. I want you to note God's progression and his patience. If you follow those sevens, the seven seals, there's one fraction in the listing of the seven seals in chapter 6, verse 8. The fourth horse comes out. It's the fourth seal. There before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was falling close behind. And Hades and Death were given power over one-fourth of the earth. It's the only fraction we see in the seals. Then we move to the seven trumpets. And you remember a third, a third, a third 
The first four trumpets, a third of something was destroyed. So you've gone from a fourth to a third. Now, those of you that don't know math, it's getting a little bigger, right? But when the bowls are poured out, there's no fraction at all, right? What I want you to see is, is that, that there's this progression throughout Revelation where God, the, the kingdoms clash and the warnings come, but ultimately wrath will restore good and destroy evil. It's real and it must be dealt with. It's, it's God's way of renewing all things and purging creation, but he does it patiently. He gives people time. And when it, the battle's been won. That's the thing. He's been waiting for thousands of years for people to come to him, even in the middle of this. The hope is that as we look at the wrath of God, it will help us to choose to surrender. Next week, we'll look at chapter 17 to 19 that replay the fall of Babylon and in 19, verse 9, we read this. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. You see, the whole point of even seeing this wrath is to realize there is an invitation to avoid it. There is an invitation to be a part of that renewed and restored creation. And, and, and the key to that invitation is to surrender. Bruce Larson, in his book, Believe and Belong, He's a counselor, and for many years he worked in New York City. He counseled at his office, and he, and he would try to lead people to surrender their lives to Jesus. And people would struggle with that, especially in New York where you're, you have power, you have some control, you have wealth. And he said very often what he would end up doing is, is he would suggest that somebody was wrestling with the decision that they needed to surrender to Jesus. He'd say, let's go for a walk. And, and he would walk down the street in front of the Rockefeller building on, the fifth, on fifth Avenue. And in front of that building is this gigantic statue of Atlas, this beautifully proportioned man with his muscles straining, holding the world on his shoulders. The most, he's powerfully built and strong, but he's straining under the weight of trying to hold the world. And, and Larson would say to his friend, he'd say, now that's one way to live. And then they would they'd go across the street on the other side of Fifth Avenue, up a little way to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is this little shrine of the boy Jesus, maybe eight or nine years old. And with no effort at all, he's holding the, the earth in his hand. And he said, I, I wanted to tell people... You have two ways to live life. You can try to carry it all on your own shoulders. You can try to be the one who's going to make your own way, or you can surrender to the one who holds the earth in the palm of his hand. You know, we can try to carry the full understanding of revelation on our shoulders. We can try to work out wrath in our own head, or we can surrender to the one who, who, who was revealed in these words, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who offers himself in our place who actually takes the cup of God's wrath and drinks it for us so that we can be made new, so that one day everything can be made new. See, what we've got to see as we go through this revelation of Jesus is the only true response to this is surrender. And I don't know where he's calling you to surrender. <laughs> you know, you guys are here during COVID. I'm, I'm betting that every person in this building has made a commitment to Jesus. You've surrendered your life. But... I'm also smart enough from my time walking with Jesus to know that, that it's not a one-time surrender. We, we walk through life and we te keep taking the reins. Even though we're following Jesus, we want to do it our way. We want it to happen our way. And the point of the revelation of Jesus is he's the one who can handle it and you can surrender to him and rest in that. Let's pray. God, these are horrible images. And, I mean, we, we see things in the world today that are 
devastating death and corruption and abuse and rioting and destruction and famine and plague. We see it all. And God, we, we are thankful that, that as we surrender to you, even in death or whatever comes our way, that we are safe, that we are yours. That you've taken the cup of wrath, that you've, you in yourself have purified evil for us. And as we wait for your coming, when everything will be restored and be made new, we live in a world of conflicted emotions and desires, people still wanting to take control into their own hands. And we just ask that as we live, we could live surrendered to you, that our lives would be signposts that would point to you, the leader who is a slain lamb who gave his life. And God, that you would enable us to lay down our own lives, that we could set aside our pride, our ego, our need to be right, that we could surrender everything to you and let you work through us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great teachers in the history of the church, a guy named Meister Eckhart. I wish I had the quote here, but I usually don't think of these closings until right now. But his quote, he he said something that really impacted me years ago, and he said, we tend to think of the spiritual life as as a process of addition. We keep adding knowledge, we add skills, we add this, we add that. But he said, one of the things we don't realize is primarily the, the, the spiritual life is a process of subtraction, where we lay things down. We come up against, no, this is not him, this is me. This is Meister, Meister Jeff. We come up against these things and we want to take control. We want to, we want to win. We want to be successful. We want to understand. And, and we try to add things instead of laying, laying them down and making space for the grace of God to fill that void. The, the, the seven bowls match the plagues from Egypt, and I think they do because the story in Egypt is the children of Israel were in captivity. They were broken, and they didn't get out of Egypt because they finally gained power and won. They came out of Egypt because God acted on their behalf, and they surrendered and followed they weren't really good at it even, but they did follow and they were set free. And, and here, what we see is these same plagues being echoed in these bowls of wrath because God's not going to liberate you and me. He's not going to set us free because of everything we have. He's going to set us free because we're surrendered. And we realize we don't have anything. That everything we need, He gives us. And it, it's that kind of surrender that we just sang about, this, this laying down of our life, this not having to win, this being a servant, this admitting when we're wrong, this loving others, not because they deserve it, but because we've been loved when we didn't deserve it. That's what, that's what it means to follow the slain lamb. Who, who chooses a slain lamb as a model of power and strength? Jesus does, right? And he says, follow me. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.